Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I bring greetings from the Assemblies of God Church in Lutsk, Ukraine, Oxygen Church in Lviv, Ukraine, the Assemblies of God Churches in Bruno and Prague, Czechia, as well as City Church in Oribo, Sweden. And uh, I just need to say that something is happening in Europe and God is doing something. And so continue to keep these churches and many more in prayer. I have been on an excursion of, uh, I've never, never had a, an encounter like I did before. I think I spent three nights was the longest I spent in any one bed, but we were all over the place and we finished it off last week of launching a new church in Prague. And uh, it was fabulous to, to be there, to be a part of that. And uh, for you, um, I know you're removed, but you need to know that this is all an extension of our ministry here at Seoul. So thank you. And now I plan to stay home for a long time and uh, actually do this thing I'm called to do. It's called being a pastor of this church. So I'm going to be working on that. Now, I'm not sure about you, but Christmas lights went up pretty early this year in some of my family's homes. I was getting pictures and videos of trees and lights going up at my kids' houses. And then I've been witnessing this strange phenomena taking place on social media as people begin to post pictures of their newly decorated trees and lights. And I read somewhere that uh, it said this, it said the idea that twinkling colorful lights will lift spirits during these dark times. I thought that was interesting, especially here in Winnipeg when it comes to the cold, dark months that we experience. And I, I wondered if people, especially on my street, we live by Candy Cane Lane. I wonder if people put up the lights early because they need something to look forward to. It actually surprised me when I turned down one night and I thought, man, their, their lights are up really early. You know, but having something to look forward to actually gives us hope and hope is the reason to keep going on. Last Sunday night, as I started to conclude my travels, it ended off with us launching the church in Prague, myself preaching, the big fellowship afterwards, and then jumping into a car with strangers that were going to drive me all the way to Warsaw. I didn't know if I was getting in with axe murderers or anything else. Like I, I just thought I'd better document where I'm going just in case something happens. But yeah, the, the story of how the, 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 this ride came together is kind of bizarre, but sure enough, a car shows up at 7.30 and I jump in the back seat and we have a discussion. But it's a discussion through Google Translate because their English is poor and my Czech and my Ukrainian is not the best. So as we traveled from Prague to Warsaw to catch a six o'clock plane, they showed me photos of what remained of their apartment in Kharkiv in the eastern Ukraine. And they showed me what remained after a rocket attack and after we had a brief conversation regarding the war, the comment was made, is there any hope? And that was a loaded statement, is there any hope? And yet when I think about it, that's really the cry of humanity. Hope is an indispensable quality of life. Because without hope, life loses all its meaning. So hope 
is actually essential. And the circumstances of our lives are constantly changing. And so this season of Advent is an invitation for us to step back from our daily lives and to see the big picture of God's salvation. And God has given us a reason to hope, but our hope is not dependent on a feeling, but hope is in the person of Jesus. And just like Christmas lights and the trees in the atrium when you've come in today, they tell us that Christmas is coming. All the stuff of Christmas can create in us this feeling of hope. But, and, and you know what? We actually need the feelings. But I, today I want us to think about the reality of hope. Not just the warm fuzzies of hope. And really, Advent is a season of joy and hope for the believer. And yet sometimes it doesn't really feel like a joyous time. In fact, many times people dread this time of year and that's because there's this tension inside of us with all kinds of things fighting for our attention. And it starts right around Thanksgiving when you think about it. It goes from Thanksgiving and then it shifts to Halloween. I had to work that into the life lesson somehow. And it builds in a momentum of craziness that begins to suck us into some sort of vortex come Black Friday. Right? And then we have what is to begin this thing called Christmas shopping and family photos and work parties. And then down the list we go and we get into this thing called task mode and it's check, 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 check until we're done. And it's completely exhausting. And sadly, if we're not careful, the Advent season becomes just another thing to check off so that we're done. And so rather than being grateful during this season, we become gripers and we become complainers. And we miss what God is doing in and around us. And Advent is much more than something we do at Christmas. And it's not just candy and calendars or lighting ca uh, candles. Advent is about living hope that looks back to Jesus. And it actually looks forward to his return. Now I'm not going to tell you anything new. You know, our faith is not about doing things or symbolic acts. I think we got it in some respects, but the real question for us today is, how do we do it? How do we live as people of Advent? People grounded and rooted in what is called biblical hope. And I think you answer this question and the chances are we'll actually have a richer understanding of what the Advent season is and the implications it has for our lives. And so to answer the question, the first thing we have to do is define hope correctly. And biblical hope is very different from how the word hope is typically used today. Because today when people say hope, they really mean something like wishful thinking. Something like, I hope the Winnipeg Jets win, right? We cross our fingers and we hope because it's uncertain and we'll never know for sure until the end of the game. And this isn't what the Bible means by hope. So biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's a confident trust that God will keep his promises. It's trusting in God's wisdom and character. People with biblical hope have always looked to God from the very beginning. They understand that humanity to itself is not good. 
that there's no hope in that. And that's because they saw how humanity has turned inward. It's become selfish. It's tried to determine what is good and right on its own, and it fails miserably. And the results of not trusting God are tragic. And it only leaves people broken and separated from their creator. Trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own wisdom. It never works because it's not living life the way it was intended to be lived in a loving and intimate relationship with our creator. And so we need someone to make things right. And that's our only hope. Right after the fall, when the things went off the rail after the Garden of Eden, we see that God's speaking with Eve. And he promises to send one who would come and crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. He would send one to actually come and rescue humanity. And ever since then, people have been hoping and waiting for this one to come and to make things right. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, generation after generation, the promises made. David is even told that this Savior, the one to come, would come from his line, his lineage. He'd be a king, but David's descendants, his sons, only end up making things worse. Their sins and rebellion divide the kingdom. They drive it into the ground. And eventually its people are taken away into exile to Babylon. And they're left what? They're left waiting. Do you know what the craziest thing about waiting is? You have no control. Have you ever figured that out? Like, how many of us just hate waiting? And why are we waiting? Because we have no control. No control. And Israel is left waiting. And during that time of waiting, things got terrible for them. And yet, and yet, the people are not left without hope. During those dark days, there was a group of prophets who kept talking about this coming king who would come and defeat evil, who would make things right. And Isaiah was one of those prophets, and one of his first predictions is found in chapter 7. And he says, Here now, you house of David, it's not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and call him Emmanuel. And you keep reading through the book of Isaiah, you come to chapter 9, and then it gives a description of this child. He says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You got to think about how encouraging that message would be for these troubled people. Hearing from a mouthpiece of God. People who are waiting for a deliverer. People who are looking to be removed from the situations what they find. And then look at the names that Isaiah gives to this child. Emmanuel. It means God with us. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And it gets better that this child would come and, and reign in a time of great darkness. And he would come and deliver his people. His reign will never end. You know, and throughout the Old Testament, we, we hear the same promise. The Redeemer is coming. The Promised One is coming. And so the people of God waited, and they waited with some hopeful anticipation. He's coming. But then there's nothing. And it's interesting. It was almost as if God goes silent. Like for 400 years, there's not a word spoken by anyone. It's, it's hard to imagine what that must have felt like, but for the people who had seen God's miracles firsthand, 400 years must have felt like an eternity. And the longer that God was silent, the worse things got. God's chosen people would be under the, the foot of the Persians, under the foot of the Greeks, and then the Romans. And they're wondering, what's going on? You know, was what the prophet said, was that actually true? Had God forgotten both his people and his promises? Where is this child? Where is this king? Where is this one who is to make things right? Is there any hope? And just at the right time, the silence is broken. We see that in Galatians chapter 4. God would send his son Jesus into the world, bringing hope and freedom to mankind. No, no longer would we be shackled to sin and death. And Matthew's gospel tells us that the birth of Jesus uh, fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord and the prophet. Again, we read the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel. We saw that before. That's what Isaiah said. Some 700 years earlier. And yes, hope would come just as Isaiah said. A hope filled in the birth of Jesus. God hadn't forgotten his promise. And Jesus was God in the flesh. God was literally among us. God is with us. And so Jesus, the infinite, unlimited God, took on the limitations of humanity so he could live and die for the salvation of all who would believe in him. And he came to earth to save us from the power and the penalty of sin. And now, through the Holy Spirit, Christ is present in the life of every believer. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his and glorious return. This is our hope as believers. This is what Advent is about. This is biblical hope. And I would present to you this morning that hope manifests itself in three ways. The act of hoping, the reason we hope, and the object of our hope. Luke chapter 2 it's a great little story. We don't spend a lot of time on this little story. It's a key part in, in the story of Jesus. But flip to your Bibles if you want or follow along on the screen. Luke's writing and he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
Okay, those three sentences are packed with information. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mar mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So when it comes to biblical hope, we come across this character in the Bible named Simeon. He exemplifies it. So who is he? What we know is that he's old, he's close to death. Because even Simeon says, uh, you know, sovereign Lord, that you've, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I can go and die for my eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen what you've promised. Now my life is, is complete. Luke doesn't tell us any more about this guy. He doesn't tell us about his position. He doesn't tell us about his occupation because Simeon viewed himself as a servant of God and Simeon thinks of himself as totally responsible to and actually very dependent upon God. And so what does the act of hoping look like for Simeon's life? See, the scripture says he's in waiting. In the Hebrew language, the word hope means to wait. And so that root in Hebrew of wait is a stretched string, which was awesome today. A stretched string. There is tension on the string, either of a guitar or the fancy instruments. But there's this tension, because I don't know the name of them. I'm just being honest. And that tension on the string is, is waiting for somebody to come along. And what, what they do is they then pull the string and create music. And the potential of music is bound up in these strings, instruments, just waiting to be played. Dwayne, can I touch your guitar? And he's saying, no, please don't. Just waiting to be played. Now, the connotation of waiting in our culture is actually boring, right? If you've had kids and we're waiting, it's boring. I'm waiting for my TikTok to load. I'm waiting for my microwave popcorn, right? I'm waiting to finish school. But I think about the picture of a broom, a broom, a groom. <laughs> waiting for his bride, not bride. Uh, I've performed many weddings, and I, I can't remember a single wedding where the groom was standing at the front, checking his watch, sighing, rolling his eyes. All right? All the guys I see are waiting in anticipation. They're doing the fly check. That's why we have our hands right over left, or left over right. It's always doing a fly check. You know, we're waiting. They're anticipating. They're, they're shuffling. Some are just bawling, right? They just can't. They can't. And maybe they're nervous, maybe they're jittery, but they're always smiling. And you look at Simeon in this passage, and, and he waits, and he prays, and he watches. And he's looking forward to God's promise while living a devoted and righteous life, which is very interesting. 
Again, if we look into 2 Peter, Peter instructs the church to live the same way as we wait for Christ's second return. Living a devoted and righteous life in our world, living devoted to God and living righteously is not easy. And some will call it boring. It's not. Many times we complain how hard it is to be a Christian and how hard life is. Maybe we need to reframe some of our thoughts. The other day I cooked lobster ravioli. It tasted very good. It turned out good because I followed a recipe. And this is an analogy, so I'm not saying life with God is a recipe, a dash of prayer, you know, pitch a church and you have a beautiful life. But what I'm saying is the life we have now can be a good life if we continue in our devotion to God following the instructions in his word and growing and then taking those things that we learn and beginning to apply them to our life to the effect of, it, of what it places on others around us. When we look at the book of Proverbs, for instance, we see that life generally goes better if you start following God's way. The Proverbs are not promises that all will go well, but they're actually general principles for how life works. And as we wait on in this, this earth, we can follow the recipe, so to speak. We, we will be thankful in all circumstances. Or are we going to complain? You know, I understand we are longing for something better and something better will come. But will we complain? Right? And will complaining hurry? It's coming. Are we going to live distracted or are we going to live devoted to God as believers? And so I want to get back to our text and ask the question, what was the reason for Simeon's hope? And I love the fact that God made a personal promise to Simeon. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that. And God's specific promise to Simeon fits within the larger promise to the nation of Israel. Simeon has this relationship with God. He's devoted to God. He's righteous. He's a godly man. And then the Holy Spirit literally speaks to him and says, you need to go to the temple because I'm going to show you what I promised. And he's waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is going to be chosen to lead a nation. And David was anointed as king and he ruled as Israel's most prosperous king. And God made that promise to David. The promise was that there will be a king who will come from his line that will sit on his throne forever. And that king is that anointed one. That king is the Messiah. So David dies. The kingdom of Israel is divided. Eventually people, like I said, went to exile. After exile, some re returned to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuilding the city in preparation for the coming king. They're waiting for the Messiah. And like I said before, they're waiting for 400 years. And that's the, the quiet time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was nothing. There was no revelation from God. And people are there and they're waiting and they want to hear God's voice and he's silent and slowly this prophetic hope for a Messiah starts turning into a pessimistic hope where's God maybe God didn't keep his promises and the Messiah has been promised but people in Simeon have been waiting a long time 
Why would Simeon think that God would keep his promise? Remember, he's devoted. And he's careful in his, a better, uh, lack of a better term, his religious duties. His religious duties, his faithfulness, helps him to remember the faithfulness of God. He knows the stories of the Old Testament. He knows that God promised deliverance from Egypt. And what happened? It came. He knew that God promised to provide in the desert when the children of Israel were walking and they had water and they had food. God came through. God promised them a land to live in and the walls of Jericho fell. And so Simeon knew he was devoted. He knew uh, um, the stories. He knew of God's faithfulness and he has the reason to hope because he remembers that God is faithful and that God keeps his promises. And God made him a promise. And you and I have reason to hope. We have reason to hope because God kept his promise to Israel and he's faithful and God still keeps his promises. Even when we look in the world and see it's so messed up, God still keeps his promises. In 2 Peter chapter 3, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He's coming back. But he's made promises. Here are some of the promises that God has made. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will be a comforter and guide. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't let your heart be troubled. If I go, I will come again. And so what we see is that even Simeon has a reason to hope. And not just Simeon, but we do as well today. And finally, the object of Simeon's hope was Jesus. He took the baby in his arms. Can you imagine that? Here's this young couple. They got their new baby. They're going to the temple to dedicate him. <laughs> and out of the woodwork, some old guy comes and picks up their child. <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened to you? And some stranger comes. Hey, let me hold your baby. Okay. He took the baby in his arms. And sometimes I, I think we, I think we, uh, <laughs> okay, run, be free. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> I love kids. I don't know if you know that as. He took, I should have picked him up. That would have been a great sermon illustration. <laughs> I might have had a panic situation and stranger danger going off. But, but, but in, in the case of Simeon, he actually picked up a human being. I think when we read over the passages of scripture, we, don't, we fail to see this. He picked up Jesus. It was an actual person. The hope for salvation is Jesus. 
And so the celebration of Jesus' first arrival, it's not a fairy tale story, no. Christmas is a remembrance that God became man, that Jesus himself took on flesh. He entered into space and time and experienced human existence. He experienced joy, pain, laughter, food, sleep, prayer, walking, playing, all of it. And when Simeon picks up the child Jesus, he does not say this baby is a sentimental reminder of God's love and our hope for a better world. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. He's alluding to several passages from the book of Isaiah and he praises Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, the hope for all nations. Jesus is the light of the darkness. And we know intuitively that the world is not as it should be. We all know that. We all know that something is broken in our world. And so we cry out, God, what's the plan? God, do something, right? When things are broken, we're crying out to God to fix it. And he did. He's kept his promise. He's given his son and Simeon makes then a prophecy that Jesus is going to cause the rising and falling in Israel. And those who take pride in their own spiritual heritage and achievements, there's going to be no place for them. And they will fall. And those who throw themselves on God's mercy will rise up. And then he has this personal and intimate message to Mary. He says a sword's going to pierce your soul too. This is a new mom. And of course we know this is Jesus speaking, or this is Simeon speaking of Jesus going to the cross. And I don't think we can imagine the anguish that Mary felt at the cross watching Jesus die. But she probably asked the question, God, what's the plan? How could this happen? You know, Simeon gives Mary a, a glimpse of her future anguish. Jesus, to the disciples, actually gives them a, a bigger picture of the plan in Luke chapter 9. He said that the Son of Man, he was referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus knew the plan. He went to a literal cross. He died. And on that cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And when we trust in Christ's work on our behalf, rather than our own efforts, God forgives us. God accepts us on the merit of Jesus' work on the cross. God then implants his Holy Spirit onto us. And we no longer live under the shadow of death. And this resurrection gives us a confident hope that Christ will come again. First Peter writes, he goes, praise be to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a present hope. We have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. That's something we believe in. We have a future hope. We have a future hope that Jesus is returning because he has risen. He will come again. For some of us, it's not too soon. It's not soon enough. And so Jesus, as believers, Jesus is the object of our hope. Jesus is the object of my hope. 
And I have hope even when I feel sorrow. And I'm sure we've all seen enough suffering and sorrow lately. And suffering and sorrow is disorientating. When we were in Ukraine, uh, I took some people with, uh, with us from Vancouver and from Toronto. And we went to a children's shelter. And of course, we're sitting and we're going to be with the children and all of a sudden the air alarms go off and we had to go into the bunkers. So of course, the children went first and then we followed after them. And they would stay in the bunkers and they literally had their beds. And if you go to my social media, you'll see it. They literally had their beds and there was a, a walkway in the center, another walkway on the other side. And uh, they would literally stay there until the all clear air raid siren was, was sent. Now, there's stuff that goes on down there that we can laugh about. We can talk about all the good times and... You know, the, to be able to be there and to be encouraging, that's all one thing. But as, as the team and this, the people that we were with, that were with us, as we left, it was our time to go. And the kids remained in the bunker because it wasn't all clear. And we exited the bunker and, and we started walking away. One of our team members said, just how unfair it is for these kids who are already placed in a children's shelter because of whatever familial dysfunction has been going on. Either their parents have uh, been arrested or um, there's drug or alcohol issues or there's uh, physical family violence, whatever. The kids are then placed in these children's shelters. It's like a precursor to an orphanage. The hope of the children's shelter is it gives them safe place. So they've already experienced trauma. And it's to give them a safe place. And hopefully to get them reintegrated back in with their family or with extended family if they would have them. And the ultimate plan is not to send them to an orphanage. Because the orphanages are even worse. But as one of my travel mates said as we walked out of the... the the bomb shelter walking back to the car. He goes, this is so unfair. Yeah. He goes, these kids have already experienced trauma and now these sirens go off and they have to go into this basement and it's a double induced trauma. It was a real interesting insight for me that I'm hearing this from people who haven't experienced it because for me, it was just, this is normal. This is what we've been used to. But they had never experienced this before. And to see how sorrow and suffering is disorientating. The next day, we go to the university in Lutsk and we're all teaching and no sooner do we get into class, the air raid sirens go off again. And it's like, no, you can't teach here. We're going into the bunkers, and you can teach in a bunker. Well, that was interesting. 
but how disorientating it was. Because you walk in and you're expecting something and then now you have to pivot and change. And it's because there's this external force that is of evil. And Satan's hope is that in suffering that we're going to abandon God. Or at least relegate God to, you know, God's just some fairy tale, some sentimental idea, which is really nice at Christmas time. Or it's, you know, Easter or Thanksgiving, but it's not, you know, it's not real. That's our world. That's what Satan wants to do. Now, again, I don't like feeling sad, but feeling sad does not mean I have no hope. It means I feel sad. I can act on hope by not putting on a happy face, but rather by believing the words of God are true. And so what are the implications for us? When I started, I asked the question, the real question for us is, how do we do it? How do we live as people of Advent, people grounded and rooted in biblical hope? How do we do it? And I understand that sometimes it's not only the craziness of the season that we live in, but it's the uncertainties of life, like the illness, like pain, like suffering, like loss or unfulfilled dreams, hurts, a host of other confusing and complicated things. And these are the real issues that you and I face daily. And sometimes there's no human answer that's sufficient enough for these type of struggles that we find ourselves in. Am I correct? except for one, and it's Jesus. And he's our hope. He's the God of hope. And I know that there are going to be people here today that may feel trapped, and you're asking the very same question I heard in that car through Google Translate. Is there any hope? Truth is, in a world without God, there isn't any hope. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where hope is alive, where we can have full assurance of hope because it's rooted in the faithfulness of God. And there may even be some here who feel like your hope is waning right now and you're wondering, is it normal that it's this hard to maintain hope? And the answer is, yeah, it's normal. It's normal because we leak hope. I think one of the reasons that we leak hope is because we live in the tension of the already and not yet kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of Christ, sort of, you know, as being already here, but not really come in its fulfillness. And what happens is that when troubles and difficulties come into our lives, it causes us um, to lose sight of the fact that Jesus' rule has already begun. In other words, he's already in control. It may not feel like it, but it is. The battle has been won. So many times we have sung about that, we've heard it, but we don't embrace it and we don't live it. But the battle has been won. Christ was and is victorious, and he has already defeated evil. And yet we still live in this world where pain and suffering are part of the human experience daily. But one day all things will be made right, 
Every tear will be wiped away and the world will be as it should be. And Jesus is the one who makes this possible because he is our hope. Maybe a simpler reason for us leaking hope is hoping in God doesn't naturally come to broken people like us. Hope is something that we have to work at. And until Jesus returns, brokenness and sin will be a part of this world. So when troubles and hardships come our way, they will weigh heavily on our souls, do they not? And we have to speak truth to ourselves. Kind of like the psalmist in Psalm 42 when he tells himself, why are you down? Why are you discouraged? Put your hope in God. We all become discouraged from time to time. Our hope can waver. And yet we know it's not a state that God wants us to remain in. And sometimes we got to preach truth to ourselves. We need to shake ourselves. And even if we don't feel like it, you need to know that it's okay to tell yourself, hey, what's the matter with you? You can even put a little Italian essence on that. What's the matter with you? Because we all have these conversations in our head, right? Ask yourself, have you forgotten God? Have you forgotten his promises? Have you forgotten his faithfulness? Have you forgotten his love? Have you forgotten his mercy? Tell yourself to put hope in God and praise him despite what's going on, despite our feelings. And I'm convinced this is how the Apostle Paul lived. We can read his letters and you'll find him spontaneously breaking out in praise as he reflects on the gospel. And this is a guy who knew what it mean, meant to put his hope into God. He was also a man who suffered, he was beaten, he was stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, falsely accused, faced so many dangers of many kinds, and yet his hope in Christ never wavered. In fact, when he was writing about the resurrection, he wrote, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul puts his hope and realize it was a living hope. It was a confident expectation in spite of the circumstances he found himself in. And he believed, he believed what God had said. He believed what God would do. And if he were here today, I think he would tell us if our bucket of hope was low, he'd tell us to fill it up and to stand firm in some hope. He'd probably say to us, hey, you need to get around other believers and to be encouraged. You need to allow them to pour into you. You need to allow others to encourage you. You need to get into the word again. You need to let it minister to your soul. I think he'd tell each and every one of us to begin to take some time and to pray, to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ because sometimes our minds are running full freight train in the wrong direction. And then he would tell us to love the Lord and to love others by pouring our life into those that he has placed around us. And I think that's how we live a biblical hope. Hope amid the troubles. Our faith in Jesus connects us to the ultimate source of hope. Jesus himself, the living hope. Know that he's always with us, moment by moment. 
Why don't you stand with me? He's with us moment by moment. He's working to conform us to his image as a follower of Christ. Oh, how we should trust his wisdom and character all the more. And as I close, I want to remind you, maintaining biblical hope is hard. It's always been hard. But keep on. Keep on keeping on in hope. And when you've done all that you can stand, stand firm. Stand firm. Hope in God. Know that he's with you. And may we be known as people of hope who look back to Jesus and who look forward to his return because he is the ultimate hope. Let's pray, Father, to you. We lift up our heads, our hearts, and our hands in prayer. We put our trust in you, believing that your word is true. We lift up to you our longing for hope in this despairing world. We lift up to you our need for hope in a time of deep and hopelessness in our world. We lift up to you our deep desire for hope in a bleak and sometimes depressing world. You promised hope to the Israelites and you kept your promise. You promised hope in the coming of your son and he was a hope for the world. You promised hope to the early church and that hope was not denied. You promised hope to us and we pray for your continual faithfulness. God, we pray for strength when our faith falters. We pray for you to pour on your love so it fills our lives and splashes over on everyone around us. God, fill us with confidence in your presence in our lives. Fill us with joy and peace as we go through this busy time of year and keep our minds focused on you and our hearts filled with you is my prayer. Amen. Now, so sanctuary. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing, and those receiving a blessing did likewise. And before you're sung out of here, loving God, now your servants may go in peace, just as your word had promised. Soul Sanctuary, remember that Jesus is our hope. And soul, look outside of yourself to share the hope of Jesus with those who have no hope. And may God smile upon you and may he make you strong and wise. May Christ Jesus share his inheritance with you freely. And may the Holy Spirit open your eyes to the presence of God's Messiah. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Now be blessed and go and live the church. And we'll see you next week. Amen.